And now will you turn in your Bibles, please, to the prophet Jonah. The prophet Jonah. And you will meet up with him, if you're using the Pew Bible, on page 657. Uh, 650, yes, 657 of your Pew Bible. This morning's sermon text is Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, the final verse of chapter 1, and we will read through verse 10 of chapter 2. Following that, I'd like us to turn to Psalm 130 in your Bible for substantiation and an example of another man who cried to the Lord from the deep. Let us then hear the word of God as it's found beginning at verse 17 of Jonah chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now we turn to Psalm 130. Out of the depths, I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. 
I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Whatever our troubles may be, however lasting, however deep, however apparently hopeless they may be, by grace the redeemed of the Lord persevere. We persevere. While life lasts, we keep on keeping on. One of the marks of redemption that struck indelibly into the Christian character is this very thing, that we not, at the moment of our last extremity, will not, under any circumstances, let go of our Redeemer. We may let go of everything else. We will not let go of our Redeemer. The counterfeit Christian fails. The counterfeit forsakes and falls away. The counterfeit curses God and dies. But never the genuine article of the redeemed. There on one occasion long ago, back in Genesis, was Jacob, Jacob, the lifelong deceiver and cheat. There we find him at the ford of the Jabbok River, the night before meeting Esau, the offended brother, the deeply offended brother. Now, 20 years had passed since those two twins had last met, 20 years. 20 years of growing apart, which is an amazing and frightening thing when you consider that the last time these two had seen one another, Esau vowed to kill him. And now the clock's about to run out on Jacob, the sinner, the offender, the cheat. And the sun's about to rise on the family reunion. Twenty years, resentment has had an opportunity to just simmer. Simmer in the heart of Esau. Twenty years of hatred fermenting, but for supernatural grace. Fermenting in the soul of the twin brother that Jacob had spent his whole youth swindling. Now he's about to meet Esau. And 400 men who were with him. The prospects for the coming day are enough to make Jacob's blood run cold. And he wrestles there with the angel of God, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate God-man. He wrestles with him 
until daybreak, finally saying, what? Finally saying, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The redeemed sinner simply will not let go of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's Job in his extremity, facing catastrophe after catastrophe, you know the story, saying, I know that my Redeemer lives. Saying such things as, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And then there's Joseph. Joseph. Joseph realizes that all of his troubles, troubles not of his own making for the most part, all his troubles are ultimately God's doing. His doting earthly father, Jacob, once gave him a coat of many bright colors, didn't he? Gave Joseph that coat of many colors. But his heavenly father chose a much darker, coarser thread to weave the fabric of Joseph's unhappy life. His brothers, not to mention the slave merchants and Potiphar's wife and the forgetful cupbearer and all the rest, all these may have meant evil against him, but God meant every dark day for good to preserve in the end many people alive. Joseph, the redeemed of God, would not let go of that rock-solid faith in the providence of God and the God of all providence. And now we have Jonah cast into the heart of the sea, not for the malice and wickedness of the sailors who cast him there, but for his own willful disobedience to God's call. That's why he was sent over the rails. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped. It's raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1. That is a great ending to the story of Jonah, isn't it? Except for one thing. It's not the end of the story of Jonah. It's not the end. Well, maybe it's the end of the story for the thankful sailors. They just sail on over the horizon of the story, rejoicing in their deliverance, like that Ethiopian eunuch in the much later apostolic days, blazing for a moment across the firmament of Acts 8 and then disappearing taking the gospel of Jesus Christ with him to Africa. If chance reigned in the affairs of men and nations, then here at chapter 1, verse 16, would indeed be the end of the story of Jonah. And not only that, but it would even be a happy ending 
at least as far as these Gentiles are concerned. They made it through another voyage. Cargo was lost. They had to send it all overboard. But every crew member spared. It would still be a happy ending for the Gentiles who've seen the power of God in the deep, who now fear the Lord greatly, who now offer sacrifice and make vows to him. It would still be a happy ending for the Gentiles. but not for Jonah. If it were chance that ruled in the affairs of men and nations, we'd have to say that Jonah's luck had just run out. It ran out the moment they sent him over the rails. But it didn't. Luck had nothing to do with it. In actual fact, we see that there's a wise and loving providence at work in the world, a wise and loving providence springing from the heart and rolling off the fingers of the Almighty. There is a creator, sustainer, redeemer, provider, who in long ages past designed that Israel be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests to proclaim among the nations round about the excellencies of him who called her out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, in the first chapter of Jonah, we saw a lot of darkness, didn't we? We saw Jonah running, pursued, apprehended, convicted, sentenced, and essentially executed for his own sin. Dear friends, the wages of sin isn't a mere word of correction. The wages of sin is not a mere slap on the hand. It's not a gentle nudge in the right direction. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is is death, and it's how we meet imminent death, how we meet the consequences of our own sin and guilt that marks us out as either redeemed from that guilt or as not redeemed. The unredeemed sinner curses God and dies. The redeemed, simply, as we've seen, will not let his Redeemer go. In that last hour of extremity, we die still holding on. And of course, dear friends, this isn't an issue that any one of us can get around. We may choose not to think of that coming hour of our death, but we cannot forestall it. We can't prevent it. The sober fact is that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The fact is that none is righteous in himself. No, not one. The fact is that if the Lord tarries, then the day of my death and the day of yours, it's right around the corner. It hastens onward. As for the days of our life, 
writes Moses, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone, and we fly away. And Moses goes on in that 90th Psalm to ask of the Almighty, who understands the power of thine anger and thy fury according to the fear that is due thee? Well, right at this moment, as he goes over the rail, Jonah's beginning to understand it. He's beginning to understand the burning fury of God against the sinner. He perceives that his own death is at hand. It's happening right now. There's no escaping it. So how does Jonah face it? Cursing God or blessing God? Does he face it as the fugitive that he actually is or as faithful Running still or redeemed? From the very last hour, the very last moment of our extremity, even from the deep, even when there is no hope, the faithful cry out to God. By grace, he's known to give his people a song in the night. He gives us a solid hope at the very edge of the grave into which we are about to fall, or indeed have already fallen. He gives us the power to pray from the belly of the great fish. And this is not the mere whistling in the dark that uh, people used to talk about maybe a hundred years ago, whistling in the dark, it means just to cheer myself up. This is a song with words, true words. It's a sure and certain hope because it's built upon a better foundation than the shifting sands of our circumstance. This hope that I'm talking about and that Jonah here exemplifies in his prayer. This is a hope built upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a hope that transcends our circumstances, transcends change and decay, transcends all these uncertainties of life and death. It's a faith and a hope built upon the changeless, electing love of God who sovereignly uses these very extremities we are facing, uses them to draw us to himself. Even finally, to summon us into his presence. That's what he does using our last extremities. That's what he does for the Christian. Draws us to himself into his very presence. And of that faith and that hope, the redeemed never let go. I should remind you 
that in Christ Jesus, not one of you will ever be actually cast over the rail. Not in any final sense. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, says Jesus. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Your most dreadful life circumstances neither are, nor ever were, nor ever will be remotely like those of your Redeemer on that awful Friday. When on the cross he took the dead weight of your sin and mine with him to the bottom of the sea. You will never be in the position he was. When his heavenly father turned away his face. In Christ that will never happen to you. But you may someday, or rather some night, some long dark night of the soul, some long dark unending winter of your life, you may feel as though you had been turned away from, had been cast out. Whatever form the shipwreck of your life may take, your soul shrivels up and offers you absolutely nothing on which you can draw for help. The nights are black. The days are blacker still. And you feel as though you're without a future, without hope. You find no comfort, no help in your own resources. Even those means of grace that your Savior lovingly furnished you when he went over the rails in your place to save you. Even in the means of grace, you may find no comfort. In those desperate moments, even the Holy Spirit can seem so far away. Now, friends, I'm just being frank with you about the Christian life. Just as the Apostle Paul had the courage to be frank about it. Is this life in Christ all sunshine and roses? Is it all lollipops and rainbows? Of course not. You've not found it to be so. No one ever has. Paul said, wretched man that I am, the redeemed apostle of the Lord, wretched man that I am, who will save me from the body of this death? And then on top of the residual sin that's, that still grips us inwardly, on top of that, there still await us those cancers, those brain aneurysms, those heart attacks, those long seasons of employment, those mounting bills, those divorces, those desperate black nights, even for the Christian who's got to live each and every day by faith and not by sight. Because sight leaves you absolutely 
destitute of hope. That's what sight does. Faith teaches you something different. Like Jonah, you hang on. And hanging on to your Redeemer, you reach a point at which you can say, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. He answered me. This is Jonah's situation exactly. There isn't the faintest glimmer of hope for Jonah now. Not now. All the perceptions of sense, some of which are described here, all the perceptions of sense are telling Jonah, it's over. It's all over. The cold water swirls him here and there, then suddenly there's this slime. This pressure, this awful smell, this awful close-in darkness, seaweed wrapped around my head, no room to move, scarcely room to think. And still, Faith calls from the deep. Faith cries from the deep, in fact, with a greater urgency and resolve than it does from the less extreme situations of relative comfort, ease, or any other perception of the senses. For all their value to us as priceless gifts of God, and they are that, our five senses don't teach us to trust him. Our five senses tend to impress us with something very different. Often it's quite the opposite of a childlike trust in him. Our senses may tell us, and often do tell us, to panic. It's time to panic. But Jonah prays from the depth of the seas, from the depths of his own death, as it were. And his prayer here in chapter 2 is the Bible's quintessential example of the conflict between faith and perception. Senses despair in the deep. There's no hope there in the belly of the great fish. There is no hope for the senses to lay hold of. Faith cries out even there and gains the victory. I have four very brief points to make from this passage, each of them about the biblical faith that cries from the deep. First of them is this. From the deep, faith cries to him who appoints a great fish. Now that sounds silly, doesn't it? Faith cries out to him who appoints a great fish. What's a great fish got to do with my living by faith in the darkest, most hopeless hour of my life? How's this big fish business ever going to help me? Here's how it can help. You see how chapter 2 is framed by this great fish that God appointed. 
It shows up there in chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And then in chapter 2, verse 10, that great fish appointed, that great fish who had been appointed disappears from the story. Then the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Shows up, does its work, disappears. Now what does this mean? In Jonah's case it means exactly what it says. But in your case and mind, and mine, there is this helpful application as well. Because among other things it means that just as surely as there was a day on the calendar and a moment when your troubles first began, so there will also come a day and a moment when they will end. They will end. Your troubles will have run their course. They will vomit you out. This horrible ride that you may be on right now, perhaps, even if it's one of your own making, that ride won't go on forever. At the right time, speaking metaphorically in your case, at the right time, he appoints a great fish. At the right time, he speaks to the fish he's appointed, and you, friend, are delivered out of it. It holds you for a very unpleasant, very disagreeable season, certainly longer than you would like to be held. It may hold you days, it may hold you weeks or months, even years, the troubles you're going through. But it doesn't kill you. It can't kill you. It has no power to kill you, the Christian, because not even that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even that. Our Heavenly Father still chastens those he loves. Of course he does. He does this just as often and for as long as we need it. But for the child of God, the endlessness, the endlessness of hell will never enter into your experience. Because Christ swallowed that up in his victory over the grave. The endlessness of hell cannot enter into your experience. These momentary light afflictions aren't worthy to be compared, in fact, with the glory that is to be revealed to us in Christ Jesus. Now, someone always seems to have doubts about these three days and three nights that Jonah spent inside the fish. How is it possible? That's the standard question about the prophet Jonah. 
How is it possible? Well, it was a big fish, wasn't it? It was a big fish in the right place at the right time. But of course, that, ends, that answer tends not to satisfy a lot of people. And it's not the whole answer. The whole answer is summed up in that first clause of verse 17. The Lord appointed it. Left to chance, this never would have happened. Not in a million years would this have happened. But the Lord appointed it. Chance has nothing to do with it. Chance has nothing to do with this story. It has nothing to do with history. It has nothing to do with your life, friends. Chance has nothing to do with it. Not if the God of this Bible is king. Not if God is God. If this story of Jonah causes you to stumble, then maybe the solution is to give up your own arbitrary, homespun presuppositions regarding what may be possible with God. It may be that you have to give up your cherished, essentially atheistic, Views on chance and random occurrence. The answer to your dilemma about the story of Jonah may involve bending your knee and the knee of your intellect to the sovereign Lord of the universe. The Lord who made you, the Lord who appointed your big fish, and who providentially brought the two of you together at exactly the right moment. We've already sung from Psalm 95. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it's he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Okay, you say, I got it. God is sovereign over land and sea. God is sovereign. But how could Jonah breathe those three days and three nights in the belly of the fish? How could he breathe? And of course, a faithful expositor of scripture has to deal with these serious questions seriously. So I spent some time thinking this through. And the more I thought about it, the more I decided this is less about air, less about oxygen, and more about that word, appointment. The Lord appointed a great fish so that Jonah might not die, but live. Maybe he also appointed air, or maybe he didn't. Before I was born, I myself spent nine months underwater, and so did each of you. I was in the womb of my mother, 
we've spent about the same amount of time, you and I, without air. And by God's appointment, we were spared, weren't we? You and I, here we are today. After nine months underwater, not breathing on our own. Almost 13 years ago, I had a brain aneurysm. Some of you know this. I had a brain aneurysm and very nearly died. Doctors that first night in the emergency room told Mary Lou that I very likely would. There's only so much they could do. And Mary Lou has told me that I spent about a week of my time in the hospital on a ventilator because the day came when I actually coded. I wasn't breathing on my own. Friends, the Lord appointed my ventilator. And every circumstance connected with its being there in the right place at the right time for me. These things don't just happen. He appointed it. So it is with the great fish. From the deep, faith cries to him who appoints it. And then too, from the deep, faith cries to him who answers prayer. He appoints a fish. He answers prayer. Look at verses 1 and 2 once again. Once I find it. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord. That's remarkable enough. But then this line, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, from the grave, as it were, from death. You heard my voice. Now, I cannot tell you today whether Jonah composed this prayer of verses 2 to 9 in quite these words at the time when he was in the belly of the great fish, or whether he articulated himself this way later on when he reflected back on his experience there and had a pen and paper handy. I honestly don't know. But whenever I try putting myself in Jonah's soggy sandals and imagine what the experience of being swallowed by a fish must have been like, I don't find myself being quite so thoughtful, quite so articulate, quite so confident even, as Jonah was. But I'm not Jonah. It could be, simply, that uh, he's later writing a summary of the urgent prayers that he prayed those 72 hours in the dark and desperate deep. We know for a fact that he prayed from the stomach of the fish, because he says so in verse 1. We know the essential content of his prayer because he expresses that content in verses 2 to 9. These are the things he prayed from the stomach of the fish. I'm of a mind to think he maybe didn't write them down until a more opportune time. But he prayed. 
Oh, how he must have prayed from his heart, from his soul, from that dark and desperate deep, prayed to him who answers prayer. But this is noteworthy too. We see that from the deep, faith cries even to him who's administering this present discipline. To him who is administering this present discipline, as the discipline is happening, many of the Christians who don't cry out to our Heavenly Father until they feel as though they're on better terms with him. They'll wait for the discipline to pass. They'll wait for the setting aside of the rod of God's discipline. Wait to be gathered again into their father's arms before they'll cry out to him. Faith cries out from the deep, even as the discipline is being administered. Beginning at verse 3. For you had cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. There is no question about it. You, Heavenly Father, are completely in the right to administer this present discipline. You're doing the right thing. You're doing the right thing. It's no fun to endure. I can't wait for this all to pass. For all I know, it may never pass. For all I know, I'm about to die right here, right now. So let me cry out to you for help in my distress at the very moment I'm enduring it. At the very moment you afflict it, inflict it. And what about you, dear friend? Are you today under the hard displeasure of a heavenly father who is determined to soften your will and bring you into compliance with his will. I wish I could say there aren't Christians who need that occasional correction, but they're all around us. Christians who need an occasional stern word of correction. They're all around us, and one of them lives right here in my own skin. Our wills need to be softened. And sometimes personal crises will do the trick for us when nothing else seems to. Let's not wait for the stroke to pass before we seek his face. Don't wait for the storm to be over. Cry out to him now, right now, in the very midst of the trouble. That's what faith is from the deep, does.
Finally, from the deep, faith cries to him who atones for my sin. Faith cries from the deep to him who atones for my sin. The locus of my discipline as a son may be right here, right now, here in the belly of this fish. I'm undergoing this discipline because I must undergo it. I need it and I must undergo it. This is for my good. But the locus for my atonement, my reconciliation with the Father whose stroke is presently upon me, the locus for my atonement is somewhere else than here. He's not working out that reconciliation here. He's already worked it out somewhere else. Yes, I'm sorely chastened, and it feels as though I am positively expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, what a blessed word that is. Nevertheless, I will look again toward thy holy temple. What a wonderful word, nevertheless. It's true I'm in a very bad way right now. There's no way to steer this thing that is carrying me, for all I know, to the roots of the mountains. Nevertheless, while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to thee into thy holy temple. My redemption was worked out there, not here. There in the temple, blood was poured out for me. There in the temple, my sins were covered. There in the temple, you promised to meet me. Not in the golden calves of Dan, not in the golden calf of Bethel, not in these useless trinkets that the pagan sailors were tossing overboard. The sailors with whom I was sailing just a short while ago. My atonement was worked out under no other terms than those you published in your word. It's to your temple, your meeting place with your people, that my broken spirit now flies, crying for help from the deep. I can't plead my own righteousness for this atonement. Not even my own blood. Both of them fall short of the need. On your terms, I plead only the blood of a spotless lamb and innocent. Not the labors of my hand can fulfill thy law's demand. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save. And thou alone. Confidence flows not from present circumstances, but from him who provides the lamb for my atonement. My circumstances, whatever they may happen to be, they may in fact be the sentence pronounced upon my own folly. Nevertheless, there is a redeemer. Nevertheless, I will look again to your holy temple, this is my confidence by the blood of another shed for me. Thou hast brought up 
my life from the pit. I want you, as we conclude, to look again briefly at verse 6. From the belly of the great fish, Jonah doesn't say, might bring. He doesn't even say, will bring. Thou hast brought. I am safe, I am secure. Right here. Right now. Right this very moment. So bring on the worst. That blood of the innocent lamb shed in the holy temple was shed for me. That blood shed in the temple foreshadows a coming day when the blood of another spotless lamb would be shed on my behalf. This Redeemer dies, and upon him all my sin, all my folly, all the guilt of all my running, he dies, and I in him. He rises again from the dead, and I with him. Whether in death or in life, I will not let him go. Beloved, true faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, faith that cries from the deep, renders the Christian, in the last analysis, unsinkable. You are, in Christ Jesus, unsinkable. As yet another prophet in another desperate time was going to express it. I'm speaking of Micah in his seventh chapter. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, yet I will arise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us a hope such as this world could never offer us. We thank you for training us by your word and your spirit to disregard, to cast overboard any thoughts of luck or chance or random occurrence in our lives. Thank you for teaching us by your word and spirit that you are working all these things together for the good of those who love you, those who are called according to your purposes. Forgive us of our running. Forgive us of our disobedience. Forgive us of our hard-heartedness. Forgive us for self-will. And teach us and teach our children through the ages of their growing up to cast all of our burdens, all of our concerns upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and to trust him. We ask in his name. Amen.